<clears throat> well, good morning, church. Um, newsflash, you can't get rid of me. I am still here. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm still here, and I'm the project manager, and doing very well, as you can see, with our projectors. Um, but that'll all be settled eventually. Uh, no, just... Uh, as I shared last time, I am still jumping through hoops uh, successfully, though, so that's good. Uh, good news, I passed background check, so I'm not sketchy. That's exciting. Um, yeah, and then also good news, which I was a little worried about this, uh, I passed my psych eval, and I mean, I was a youth pastor for 12 years, and <laughs> I feel like there's a lot of damage from that, <laughs> um, but... <laughs> You know, the guy, I think he, he was gracious, and he, he, yeah, no, I passed, so that's good. Um, so, yeah, I'm still here jumping through hoops, um, and, yeah, so thanks for having me. Uh, I asked Ed, I said, should I introduce myself as pastor, project manager, guest speaker? Like, what do I, what do, I do here? Um, but anyways, um, there is one way you could get rid of me this morning, though, um, is uh, my wife, as I was leaving this morning, she goes... Hope my water doesn't break in your sermon. Uh, so we're expecting a son any day. Uh, so if Megan, the, just like the best prank for her to do on me is just like get up and leave the room really fast. And then I'll be gone. Uh, so I, I hope she went to the bathroom before. Um, so anyways, uh, today's sermon is just another one-off. Uh, we're, we're getting ready to... Uh, next week, pick back up in Romans, and I, I kind of hate doing standalone sermons because I find it so hard to choose uh, when you have the whole Bible in front of you. Uh, and so finally, at some point in the week, I decided that we were going to do um, a character study. Uh, and today we're going to be focusing on Samson, uh, his life and his death, and, and kind of what we can learn from it. Um, and uh, Samson's Story. It comes at the toward the end of the book of Judges. Uh, in fact, he's the last judge uh, specifically talked about, and we get a lot more material on Samson than we do all of the other judges. Um, we don't have time to go through. I'm not going to preach verse by verse through th three chapters, right? Uh, but we don't have time to go through every single uh, verse. But what I'm kind of going to do is. Uh, we'll we'll kind of sift through these couple chapters. I'm going to do a lot of reading of, of Scripture, uh, and we're going to hit some of the high points of Samson's life and, and low points, uh, arguably, and just to make sure uh, we're, we're all on the same kind of page with it. Um, and then we'll see kind of what we have to learn uh, from it. Samson's life sums up the entire message of Judges and points us beyond Judges. Um, God is going to give us a picture of how he saves his people. And by this point, we see in Judges, we can conclude that Israel's cycle of disobedience is uh, permanent. And so kind of what that looks like, uh, going into the context of Judges, right? We see they have, the Israelites, they have fellowship with God. They follow God. Uh, they love him. It's, they're on good terms. And then they get into idolatry. Their heart is drawn away to worship other gods, other things, other people. 
Then they uh, fall into the trap of enslavement. God punishes them by allowing these gods uh, to enslave them or people to enslave them or both. And then we see repentance. Um, they suffer and repent and cry out to God. Uh, and then eventually the, the last little stage is deliverance. God raises up a judge to save them. Uh, some of the other judges you probably have heard of uh, other than Samson is we have Gideon, we have Deborah and Barak, we have Ehud, we have Jephthah. So there, there's a bunch of them in, this, in the book of Judges, um, and we just see them consistently repeating this cycle of fellowship, idolatry, enslavement, repentance, and deliverance. Um, and getting a little into the specific context of Samson, we see in 13.1 it says, Again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, so the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Okay, so we get this latest kind of enslavement in Judges, um, and it's the Philistines. The Philistines were uh, very, very bad people. Um, I heard somebody put, or I read somebody put, the way you can sum up the Philistines was uh, four Bs, buccaneering, beer, bacon, barbarism. <laughs> um, this was the Philistines. They represent the enemies of God at their strongest, Numer numerically, culturally, economically, uh, militarily. They are all superior to Israel. So buccaneering, right, they had built their whole civilization on piracy and conquest and, and, and conquering things. Uh, beer, their parties were epic for their debauchery. They pioneered this uh, week-long thing called the Mista, and it was a word of a week-long drinking fest. You thought that was invented at the University of Oregon. It was not. Um, uh, so there were big partiers. Bacon, they were very big into pork. Uh, at some point, they filled Israel's countryside with pigs, which was interesting at the time because pigs were considered unclean. And then finally, they were very barbaric. They were unspeakably cruel to those that they conquered. When they would capture a, a town, they would mutilate, they would torture, uh, they would impale their enemies on, on fence posts and, and things like that. Uh, they were just a very, very rough set of people. However, they were extremely sophisticated. Their weaponry, their architecture, their culture was far beyond any civilization at the time. They were the first ones to work with iron and iron weapons. They are first ones to employ battle formations in war. Their art, their pottery, and architecture were all very advanced. They were building multi-story buildings uh, and bridges at a time that Israel, the Israelites were basically just hanging out with their sheep. Okay? So we have this context of judges, right? So God raises up a judge. They like it. They get enslaved, and then they are delivered. Um, and then at the very end of this, the very end of Judges, and there's a few chapters after this, but, but Samson is the last judge. Um, we get this context of, of the Israelites are in possibly their worst position yet. And then we come to Samson's birth. Verse 5 says, You will become pregnant and have a son whose head is never to be touched by a razor because the boy is to be a Nazarite. Dedicated to God from the womb, he will take lead in delivering Israel from the hands of the Philistines. 
Uh, so Samson is born to a man named Manoah and his wife, and, and this is what is happening here. An angel of God is talking to Manoah's wife, and fun fact, we actually never learn her name. Uh, and basically, they, the angel tells uh, this man and this woman, and, and this kind of plays out a little bit um, longer, but basically, hey, I'm going to give you a son. He's going to be a Nazarite. Um, and he's going to take this vow. And basically this vow is he can't cut his hair, uh, but he also can have no wine, anything from, uh, anything from the vine, and touch no dead bodies. Okay? Um, oh, there's my slide for that. Nazarite vow. No alcohol, don't touch dead bodies, don't cut your hair. Uh, and then jumping to verse 24 through 25 here. The woman gave birth to a boy and named him Samson. He grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir in him. So there's our kind of context here. And, and, and how we're going to kind of break this down with Samson is we're going to go through three acts of Samson's life. Again, it's not going to be able to cover everything, but I think there's a lot of interesting things about Samson, a lot of things that I necessarily didn't know about him until I really uh, sat down and studied him. Uh, so act one is Samson's marriage. So it says, Samson went down to Timnah and saw there was a young Philistine woman. When he returned, when he returned uh, to his father and mother, he said, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. His father and mother replied, isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among our, all our people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is the right one. Then we come to verse 4, and it says, in parentheses, his parents did not know that this was from the Lord, who was seeking an occasion to confront the Philistines, for at that time they were ruling over Israel. Uh, verse 4, it should stand out to you because it highlights something so critical of Israel in this cycle that I have kind of outlined for you. Um, in the judges before Samson, the Israelites, they always cry out for help, but this time they are not. It is in that that they are finally facing their greatest threat yet. It is elimination not by extermination, but rather it is elimination by assimilation. Israel has grown so comfortable in their captivity, they are not crying out for deliverance, and they don't even want to be delivered anymore. They're, this is always the greatest threat to the people of God. You see, when the, when the enemy comes against God's people to exterminate them, really what we'll do is, is we'll rally ourselves up to put faith in God, and, and he acts on our behalf, but when the enemy makes us comfortable, he entices our heart away from God. This is where Israel is. But God, uh, he, he didn't, God doesn't save his people just to keep them alive, but rather God saves them for him so that we can be consumed in love with him. Uh, but now we see that they're just comfortable in captivity to the Philistines. So what God is doing here in verse 4 is he is stirring up some conflict among the Israelites and among Samson, as we'll see, and among the Philistines. So enter, he, he wants to stir up some conflict. Enter Samson, a hot-blooded, testosterone-ridden, impulsive meathead on roid rage. <laughs> Verse 5. Uh, 
Am I in verse 5? I can't see that. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Samson went down to Timnah together with his father and mother. As they approached the vineyards of Timnah, suddenly a young lion came roaring toward him. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him so that he tore the lion apart with his bare hands as he might have torn a young goat. Just want to pause there. Apparently, they knew how to tear apart young goats in that time. Uh, this is kind of random. I don't know if you know that or if I'm just missing something, but anyways, apparently that's how he tore it apart. Um, but he told neither his father nor his mother what he had done. Then he went down and talked with the woman, and he liked her. Oops. <clears throat> Sometime later, he went back to marry her. He turned aside to look at the lion's carcass, and in it a swarm of bees and some honey. He scooped out the honey with his hands and ate it. Uh, as he went along, when he rejoiced his parent, when he rejoined his parents, he gave them some, and they ate too, ate it. But he did not tell them, for he had taken the lion, the honey from the lion's carcass. So from this, he uh, he decides to basically create this riddle, uh, and basically it's going to be from his experience of taking the the, the honey from the lion's carcass, uh, and he, he 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 gets this big party together. He challenges thirty men. Uh, to figure it out, and if they can figure it out, he'll give them 30 sets of clothes. Um, but if not, he gets 30 sets of clothes. Uh, but what happens is when they can't figure it out, the Philistines, they basically force Samson's wife uh, to figure it out for him. And when she can't do it, she pulls the oldest trick in the book, and she cries until she gets what she wants. Um, and then we pick up in 19, and it says, Then the Spirit of the Lord... Uh, wait... Right there. Then the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. He went down to Ashkelon, struck down 30 of their men, stripped them of everything, and gave their clothes to those who had explained the riddle. Burning with anger, he returned to his father's home. And Samson's wife was given to one of his companions who had attended him at the feast. Okay, so in Act 1, we can clearly see there is so much dysfunction in Samson's life, right? There is so much that is happening here. There is so much brokenness. There is so much kind of um, chaos. And as we're going to see, uh, it, it's only going to get worse. But what we see, you know, coming from verse 4 is that God is working in this dysfunction. God is working in this chaos. God is in control of things, and he is seeing through his plan, and before we get to the next uh, kind of two acts, I, I just want to pause here and kind of give us just something that we can learn right off the bat. And, I, and I'm going to talk about it now because I think it's so important to understand that God seeks us even when we don't seek him. God seeks us even when we don't seek him. This is important. This is an important understanding because this is a biblical understanding. That, we, that when we were sinners, Christ died for us. God seeks all people equally. He loves all people equally. There is nothing that we can or cannot do that will get in the way of this. And because of that, there is always, always, always an opportunity for even the most lost of us to have a relationship with God. The love, uh, and, and I think this is, for me, this is personal because I think of the people in my life who, you know, they're not as bad as the Philistines, right? But the, the people in my life who 
are lost, who have rejected God over and over and over and over again. And what, I, what this tells me is that God is still seeking them, that God still loves them. And for you as a person who knows God's love or understands it or is, has a relationship with God, this is the, the, the encouragement for you of don't give up on them because God hasn't given up on them. God seeks us even when we don't seek him. Don't stop praying. God is seeking them just like he sought you. God's grace covers them just like it covers you. So we pick up in Act 2 of of Samson's Revenge, and and we're going to see it just gets worse. Later on, at the time of wheat harvest, Samson took a young goat and, again, young goat, uh, and went to visit his wife. He said, I'm going to my wife's room, but her father would not let him go in. I was so sure you hated her, he said, that I gave her to your companion. Isn't her younger sister more attractive? Take her instead. Um, This is going well. Samson said to them, this time I have a right to get even with the Philistines. I will really harm them. Um... So he went out and caught 300 foxes, cool, tied them tail to tail in pairs, even better, and then fastened a torch to every pair of tails, uh, lit the torches, uh, and let the foxes loose in the standing grain of the Philistines. He burned up the shocks and the standing grain together with the vineyards and the olive groves. When the Philistines asked who did this, they were told Samson, the Timnite's son-in-law, because his wife was given to his companion. So the Philistines went up and burned her and her father to death. This is going well. Um, Samson said to them, since you have acted like this, I swear that I won't stop until I get my revenge on you. He attacked them viciously and slaughtered many of them. Then he went down and stayed in a cave in the rock of Edom. So he kills a bunch of Philistines right here. Um, But here's the thing. So when you think of Samson and word association, you probably think of Samson and a jawbone of a donkey, right? Uh, This isn't even that story yet. So he's already um, killed many of the Philistines, and then he goes down to this rock. Um, And then what happens is the Philistines, they come to uh, Judah, and basically they confront the people of Judah, and they're like, what do you want? Hey, we want Samson. Hey, we'll go get him for you. Uh, So they send send 3,000 people to go get him, and Samson agrees to go, but then, and, and we pick up here, he says, agreed, they answered. He says, hey, I'll go with you as long as you don't kill me. They agreed, they answered, and he said, when we... We will only tie you up and hand you over to them. We will not kill you. So they bound him um, with two new ropes and led him up from the rock. Um, As he approached Lehi, the Philistines came toward him shouting. The spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon him. The ropes on his arms uh, became like charred flax and bindings dropped from his hands. Finding a fresh jawbone of a donkey, he grabbed it and struck down a thousand men. Samson led Israel for 20 years in the days of the Philistines. 
the pot has been stirred. <laughs> okay, so we have gotten to this point now uh, where Samson is born, and then we have this drama in Act 1, and then we have Samson's revenge, and it is uh, through this drama uh, that basically we get Samson as a judge, as the leader of Israel. The pot has been stirred, um, and so we, we kind of pick up in our cycle of, okay, we kind of skipped the repentance part, but at least we have this leader, we have this person uh, who is going to uh, lead the Israelites, and, and, and they kind of recognize, okay, maybe things are, are better, uh, maybe they're worse, I'm not quite sure, um, but it says here that Samson has, uh, leads Israel for 20 years. Then we pick up in the final act, Samson and Delilah. Um, and it says, Sometime later, he fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. The rulers of the Philistines went to her and said, See if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength um, and how we can overpower him so we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver. Um, so what happens here is Delilah takes, uh, she, we have these three interactions with Samson. And she is trying to get rich. Uh, and she is trying to figure out Samson's, where does Samson's strength come from? Uh, and, and basically, he lies to her three different times. So he says, hey, you know, my strength, uh, if you bound me with un, uh, undried rope, I, I won't be able to break it. And then uh, we have this very awkward, interesting interaction, I guess. I'm not entirely sure what's happening, but she, she ties him up with, with undried rope, and <clears throat> she waits till he's sleeping, and then she yells, hey, you know, Samson, the Philistines are here, and he wakes up and he breaks them. Um, and, and it's not entirely like, does he kill everybody? Does he not? Does he not see them? Does he, you know, but regardless, we have these three repeat situations with, with two different times with ropes. And then a third time with, with things clips in his, in his hair. Um, and, and every single time you're just like, okay, dude, how do you not understand what is happening here? Uh, but you know, he continues to go through, uh, with it for whatever reason, um, and then finally, uh, so three times he's tricked or whatever, I don't really know. Um, and then finally, Delilah, she takes a note out of Samson's wife's book, and she pulls the oldest trick in the book. She cries until she gets what she wants. She convinces him to uh, tell him, and so finally he tells her, he tells her, and we pick back up there, and it says, um, so he told her, he told her everything. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. If my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become weak as any other man. So unsurprisingly, she, she gets him to sleep. She sings him a lullaby. Uh, she gets his hair cut. He is taken prisoner of the Philistines. They finally uh, have Samson in, uh, in chains and ropes and... They decide to gouge his eyes out. 
And then what happens is they have this victory, right? They have this victory. They finally have the person who has been causing them so much chaos. And we really kind of get this, <clears throat> this picture or this image of, of how wicked this culture is, is they basically throw what you could say a dinner party, and there's thousands of them there. And Samson, in his weakness, he is bound with his eyes gouged out, is, is the entertainment of the night. They kind of parade him around the party of, of look and see how our gods have, have delivered this man into our, into our captivity. And uh, it, we have the entertainment here. Uh, and we pick back up in 27 with this dinner party. And it says, now the temple was crowded with men and women. All the rulers of the Philistines were there and on the roof. Uh, we're about 3,000 men and women watching Samson perform. Then Samson prayed to the Lord, and he said, Sovereign Lord, remember me. Please, God, strengthen me just once more, and let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. Then Samson reached toward the two central pillars on which the temple stood, Bracing himself against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he pushed with all of his might and down came the temple on the rulers and all the people in it. Thus he killed many more when he died than when he lived. <laughs> what a complicated life. What a complicated legacy, a calling um, that Samson leaves behind for us. Um, and so, what can we learn from Samson? So we, we kind of already, um, we already have this idea of, 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 from a few chapters ago that, that God seeks us even when we don't seek him. So we have God who is in the middle of all this. He's orchestrating all of this. He is seeing to it what he wants done is um, done. And so we know that God is in control, even though uh, it's a little confusing, it's a little complicated, it's a little messy uh, to, uh, as how it appears to us. But I think we can look at, at Samson as an individual and, and take away a lot of different lessons from him. And, and, and what do we learn? The first thing that I think we learn from Samson is that we are our own worst enemy. Uh, we are our own worst enemy. Uh, deconstruction, it's this, uh, deconstruction is this term. Uh, it's a very kind of end term right now, deconstruction of of people who are deconstructing their faith and, 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 and putting it aside. And, and it's basically just this process of um, not necessarily becoming an atheist, but it's a process that um, you're, you're trying to pick apart faith. You're trying to pick apart Christianity. Um, and I have talked to people who are deconstructing, and, and this idea that we are our own worst enemy is something that is picked apart uh, pretty early on in the process of deconstruction. Um, 
they would say that deconstruction is, is uh, not deconstruction, they would say we are this, our own worst enemy. Like this idea that we are sinners, this idea that we are flawed, this idea that we struggle. And, and if we put it in our foundation of, of how, um, much it, how much of a negative effect it has on us. And, and the person that I was talking to said, I hope you don't teach your kids this. Um, deconstruction, people would say this is painful, this is harmful, but I would disagree. I would say that if we are to ever grow as a people, grow as a person, grow as a Christian, uh, we have to recognize that we are our own worst enemy. We have to recognize out of this sense of humility in us that I'm not perfect and that there is room to grow. That I, I am not a person who is always going to get it right. That at some point, I'm going to have to apologize because at some point, shocker, I was wrong. <laughs> this idea of we are all, our own worst enemy, it comes out of a sense of humility and humbleness. And we understand that, yes, I'm not perfect I'm a sinner in need of a Savior, and it, it is that mentality and that idea that, that we have to have if we are ever going to grow. Now, obviously, this can become harmful. This can become this idea. It, 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 we can take it to an, a level that is an, ex, an extreme level, right? So, so yesterday, my daughter, sweet Brindley, she can do nothing wrong, right? But she, she just spilled things like six different times yesterday. It was, it was just one of those days. It was just like spill here, spill there, spill there. And finally, the sixth time, she just knocks this glass off the table, and I just got super frustrated, and I just picked up the glass, and I slammed it on the table, and I just looked at her, and I was like, can we not? <laughs> and she just looked at me, and she said, it's okay, Daddy. And I'm like, <laughs> right? So, and then my wife kind of looked at me, and she's like, eh, and I was like, okay, I got I'm fine. I'm fine. Now, if I took that opportunity with Brinley, my three-year-old, to teach her the effects of sin and how she's a terrible person and falls short, yes, that would be taking it too far, right? There, there's obvious examples here of we, this understanding of we are, we are our own worst enemy. We are sinners. We, all, we are flawed. We can take that to an, a level, to an extreme level to where, yes, it is damaging, However, I don't see that command. I don't see that clearly made in Scripture. However, we are, Scripture makes clear that we are a sinner in need of a Savior, but yes, we are loved, and yes, we are cherished, and yes, we can grow, and yes, we can be taught how to do things better, and yes, we do have to apologize sometimes. But we have to recognize that we are flawed, so specifically, kind of this idea of, of how, is, how is Samson his own worst enemy? Samson compromises. Samson, he treats, uh, he treats the, God, the, the commands that God gives him casually. He didn't mind breaking them. I'm sure he said to himself, what can this hurt? I got away with this before. Oh, the Spirit of God will get me out of it again. Um, cut my hair, you know, whatever, it's, it's not a big deal. He compromises. He takes the commands God gives him casually. Where are we compromising? 
Where do we take God's commands not seriously, right? This, this breach of integrity. Is it really that bad? Everyone else is doing it. Viewing this porn is harmless. I'm not actually cheating on my wife. I'm not actually cheating on my husband. I'm not actually hurting anyone. This little fling, I can get away with it. Uh, this gossip that I know is clearly gossip. Everybody gossips. Who cares? Does it really say that? And what I mean by that is, again, with uh, uh, this deconstruction thing, it's, does the Bible really say that? Does it really command that? I heard a person put, he said, if that thought is coming in your mind frequently, um, what is happening there is you are distancing yourself from God. Does it really say that? Now, there's obviously room here for What does this actually mean? How do we actually apply this? We have to interpret Scripture. We're commanded to do that. But yet again, if we take this to the next level of, well, does the Bible say really just one husband or one wife? Does it really mean I should remain pure until marriage? Does it really mean I can't cheat and lie? Does it really say that? Does it really mean, uh, does it really mean that? Does it really say that? Samson compromises. Where are we compromising? The next thing is Samson is impulsive. Samson, he is driven by his lust, by his stomach, by his anger. Um, And he just clearly doesn't have any kind of plan, per se. He just kind of goes where the wind blows him in some senses. Uh, Proverbs 25, 28 says, A person without self-control is like a city with broken down walls. It leaves you defenseless before before the enemy. You have to decide if you are going to be driven by God's will in your life. You have to decide if you're going to be driven by God's will or your own desires. What is your primary criteria in major decisions in your life? Does it please you or does it please God? You have to decide if you're going to be spirit-led or desire-led. He is impulsive. We can be impulsive. I can be impulsive. I, as I was kind of prepping this and saw this point and, and, and began to understand it, I feel convicted uh, because if you were to ask my wife, you know, does Justin have a one-track mind, she would just roll her eyes and be like, yes, oh my gosh, yes, right? Uh, I, I have this one-track mind, and, and a lot of us have the same kind of mind, uh, but I have this one-track mind, and sometimes it gets on track of good things, like when I need to clean out the garage, uh, but then many other times I have this mind that I just become obsessed with this idea, no matter how obscure it is, and I just can't stop thinking about it or doing it or wanting to do it, right? Uh, it it kind of... Megan first saw it with, you know, three and a half years ago. I was like, babe, I think I'm going to get into woodworking. And she just looked at me and she was like, do you know what wood is, right? <laughs> you know, and then, and then recently I've gotten into fishing. I'm not good at it. But, you know, I, I, I just, I get this idea. I get this thought. I get this uh, wonderful thing in my mind that I want to chase it and go after it. And, and, and I kind of get tunnel vision and it's, it's impulsive, 
It's impulsive. Now, this, these are kind of surface-level things. I'm not saying woodworking or fishing or, or things like that on the surface are, are sinful, and it doesn't mean that we owe, I'm not calling us to be people of just sitting here and looking at Scripture 24 hours a day, right? It, there, there's, again, there's, there's a balance here, but I can see that in other areas of my life that the ones who are maybe a little bit more surface-level, right, I can see that I am, again, my own worst enemy, I am flawed and I am impulsive. And that this impulsiveness can take root not only in my habits, but it can take root in my relationship with God. And I have to be careful and see that am I being impulsive? Am I making wise spiritual decisions? And, And ultimately, am I making this decision because it is glorifying me or is it glorifying God? I used to share with the students all the time. It's kind of simple with God's will in some senses. If, if you are making a decision and it's clearly going to separate you or put things in between you or God, I can guarantee it, it's not in his will. And we are, it's a simple way of looking at it, but we have these opportunities, these moments, these relationships, these decisions in our lives every single day. You have to decide, are you going to be spirit-led or desire-led? Does it please you or does it please God? Samson is prideful. Everything in Samson's, in this this story, it's all about him. Uh, Read through these chapters and see how much Samson uses the word I. And ultimately, he, he leverages his God-given strength and his abilities mainly for him. Eventually, he allows his hair to be cut because he has convinced himself that his incredible strength is, is really from him, not God. He breaks all of his Nazarite vows. Everything in his life is about him, me. He is prideful. Are we being prideful? We have gifts from God. You have spiritual gifts in your life. You have abilities that God has given you. Are you using them for you or are you using them for him? And then lastly, we see he is entitled. I deserve this. When, when Samson fi- finally prays, it's like the first time when he finally talks to God. He is, he is at his lowest. He is in, he is the entertainment for, for the Philistines who he's supposed to deliver God's people from. He is He has no vision. His eyes are gouged. He is at the bottom of the pit. He is at the bottom of his life. He he gets there because he is compromises. He is impulsive. He is prideful. He is entitled. He thought he deserved it. He thought it was his. 
We can have these same moments. We feel like we are entitled to certain things. We feel like we are entitled to good health. We are entitled to wealth, entitled to shelter, entitled to driving a nicer car, entitled to basically these things that make us feel good. And the moment that one of those is stripped away, how do we react? How do we deal with it? Do we take it as a separation from God or do we take it as a moment and an opportunity to grow in our relationship with God, to dig into our relationship with God? These four things, I think, are the greatest threat to what God wants to do in your life. When we compromise, when we become impulsive, when we live with this sense of entitlement, when we walk in pridefulness, basically what happens is we have this destruction, again, to tie the very beginning of this into it. We have this destruction, not by extermination, but we have this destruction by assimilation. Because I would say with these four things, our, our culture would say well, it's okay. You can do that. Does the scripture really say that? Or do you really have to act that way? Or can you really not have what you want? Can you not have your happiness? Because everything in our culture is literally all about me and my happiness and how my life is. And we see that the second that we become about that, and it's, it's a struggle to say this, but the second that we become all about ourselves, we isolate ourselves from God and eventually from other people. And then we end up by ourselves miserable. We don't feel like God is there, yet he still is. But we don't feel like God is still there and we have no meaningful relationships in our life. When we become self-centered and all about us and what we want to accomplish and what we want to do, it leads you into the same cycle of destruction that Israel is in for hundreds of years. It is an extermination not by destruction, but rather by assimilation. Our culture says, you know, hey, you can, you can compromise. You can, you know, just go do whatever you want. It's okay to have a little of entitlement. You do deserve this. And it separates us from God. Second thing, and I'm going to end with this, is um, we learn from Samson that it is never too late to cry out to God. It is never too late to cry out to God. Samson, his entire life, it seems, has not been about the right things he's made. Even though God is using him in miraculous ways and he is, God has this plan right, we see Samson is being used by God, but yet we also see Samson continually makes mistakes. He continually makes terrible decisions. He murders people. He breaks all of his vows. He doesn't ever recognize that anything that is happening in his life is a result of God and his God-given abilities. He is lost his strength. He has lost his ability to lead. He has lost his eyesight. He is in the middle of people who are his sworn enemies. 
And he is entertaining them because of the abuse and, and, and how weak he is in this moment. And finally, that's when Samson cries out. And we see that God blesses, and there's a verse in, in, in later, I think it's verse 42, it says Samson's hair begins to grow back. And that's significant, and significant, significant because, again, it is never too late to cry out to God. You might look at your life and just see all of the mistakes that you have made. You see how you have separated yourself from God. You see that you are flawed. You see that you have hurt people. You see that you make mistakes. You see your pridefulness. You see your lustfulness. You see how you could be better. You see how you have failed. You see how you have rejected God. It is never too late to cry out to God. And no matter how many mistakes you've made in your life, no matter what situations, fair or unfair, that have happened in your life, no matter where you find yourself, no matter how far you feel away from God, God never stops seeking you. And it is never too late to cry out to God. And that even in all of this mess that we find ourselves in, there is an opportunity for you. You can reach out to God. God still loves you. God still cherishes you. God's grace is still for you. It is never too late to cry out. Let's pray.